0: You know, like a small amount of money, a small amount of effort can go a pretty long ways in other people's lives. And I feel like when you balance those those two things, you're kind of left with this obligation to, to go out and actually do that useful thing.
1: From Simbi Foundation, it's Impact in the 21st Century, a show about innovators, activists, entrepreneurs, authors, and the positive impact they make. I'm Aaron Friedland, and on the show today how climber and social innovator Alex Honnold changed humanity's perceptions around climbing. And now with the Honnold Foundation is mainstreaming solar installations to improve access to education and electricity. Thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And Alex, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. And thank you so much for taking the time to make this happen.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Right now you're in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, we live in a COVID world. So what does your day look like? How has COVID impacted you and how are you doing?
0: Uh, well, I'm actually doing great, uh, almost embarrassingly so in a way, because, uh, you know, because we're in sort of a COVID world and because it has had such a hard impact for so many people, you know, I feel slightly bad. saying so I'm like, I'm having a great time. But basically, because there are restrictions on travel, I'm not doing any work. I'm not doing any appearances. I'm not tra- traveling for anything. So that means I just get to stay home, train, go mountain biking, go go climbing, so my day to day is actually not really affected at all. Um, you know, I'm kind of loving it, but I think the the main challenge of COVID for me is having no plans in the foreseeable future, like no expeditions to train for, or no big projects to train for, no film projects, you know, mm. like having nothing on the horizon, but I'm kind of loving the day to day training, honestly.
1: I'm glad to hear it. And yeah. for those who are wondering what kind of mountain biking uh, do you
0: do and what kind of bike do you ride? Um, uh, I'm riding a specialized, uh, like a stump jumper. It's like kind of a nice bike. They, uh, they sent it to me and, it was, uh, you know, I'm not a great biker, but I was like, it sure makes it pretty fun. But, um, yeah, I mostly ride cross country type things. just like traveling in the mountains. I mean, I kind of, you know, like to bike the same way I climb, just going out and having an adventure. Okay.
1: And I assume then you don't bike with ropes either. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, typically no, but actually I do bike incredibly conservatively because I'm not a great biker and I don't want to get hurt for climbing. So, uh, so I am pretty careful. That's why I don't really like downhilling and things where you have to just go super fast and, and go for it. Cause ultimately everybody winds up hurt and you know, I want to stay healthy for climbing.
1: So one thing I actually just want to touch on, you you mentioned that Specialized had sent you the bike. Mm. So I guess, you know, since 2017 and since the release of your film, which we'll chat about how has your day-to-day changed from, you know, someone who's just deeply passionate about their work and who falls in love with the work that they do. And suddenly you are internationally recognized. You have people lining up to see you and you're getting North Face sending you gear and bike companies sending you
0: bicycles. Like, how, does that change who you are at all? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd like to hope that it doesn't change you too much, but, um, but no, definitely it has been a huge change. I mean, Uh, It's funny hearing you say someone who's in love with their work, because for me, I've never even considered it work. You know, I just love going climbing. I've always loved climbing. And I'm able to put a tremendous amount of effort into my climbing. And so I will say that in the year post the release of Free Solo, so 2018 into 2019, uh, I was doing a tremendous amount of travel around the film, the film tour, you know, the whole Academy Awards circuit. And then going to like the Emmy Awards, basically all these television awards in the U.S. um, and in the U.K., actually uh and just you know i mean it's just so much and then tons of corporate speaking events and and just like public appearances and and things around the film and Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of interesting that as you get more successful as a climber you do less climbing (laughs) you know but then in a way COVID has been a a major reset because all of that is canceled i mean partially the film has already run its course and i was already sort of transitioning back to normal life Mm -hmm. and then of course COVID is just such a such a big transition um and so now, in a way, I'm like, oh, I'm just back to normal. I just go climbing all the time. I train as hard as I can. I, you know, focus on climbing projects, and that's it. I don't know. We'll, of we'll kind of see maybe over the next year what happens to the world and, and what that does for, for my lifestyle. But, I, you know, I certainly feel about the same as I did 10, 15 years ago. You know, I just want to be as good of a climber as I can.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, it's really beautiful to hear. I, I think it's interesting that you don't see what you do as work to be completely honest. I don't see what I do as work either. And then mm-hmm. I'll have people say, you know, you're working really hard. And I'm like, I'm either working really hard or I'm not working at all.
0: That's, I always I, I used to joke that I lived on vacation because the climbing lifestyle is so close to a vacation because you travel to the most beautiful places to go climbing and then you climb all day. The thing is if you didn't love climbing it would be it would be hell because you're basically just having physical toil for eight ten hours a day but when you love climbing you're just like oh I'm, I'm on vacation you're That's it's incredible
1: yeah yeah it absolutely is we'll keep it up yeah, thanks. so before we get any further you do have quite an impressive list of accomplishments and I do feel compelled to list a few off just to provide the, the conversation with a little more context so your 2017 uh, free solo of El Capitan is essentially regarded as one of the greatest athletic achievements
0: of human history, which is pretty sweet. (laughs) I mean, when you put it like that, it does sound impressive, but you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's for others to decide. Absolutely. And, and then, so the
1: documentary free solo was was made uh, during that process. And I will tell you just rewatching some of the footage um, the boulder problem specifically, my hands got clammy just watching it. Um, I
0: mean, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it it is an incredible film. I mean, that's it, it's like such a rare life experience for everything to come together. You know, when you have this incredible objective and this incredible desire to do it, you know, basically it's like a peak of my life. You know, it's like everything kind of built to this moment that I really wanted to do this thing that's incredibly hard to do. But then there also happens to be this incredibly talented team of filmmakers that are also really at the top of their game trying to create. And it just all coalesces into this amazing film. And then you're like, wow, whoever would have thought that that would come together. But, you know, sometimes things just work out and you're like, oh, sweet.
1: Absolutely. And so then in addition to that, you're an author of the book Alone on, on a Wall or On the Wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe you have a co-author with that as well.
0: Yeah, I'd co-authored with David Roberts. Um, and then I actually added to the book after I free sold it all cap because I felt like that was such a big thing in my life that I should I should sort of amend the uh, autobiography. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's been republished now. Awesome. And then among many other impressive accomplishments, you're the founder of the Honold
1: Foundation. And if I may, uh, I'll just give a brief intro to it. And then I'd love for you to expand on that later on. Cool. Uh, but the Honold Foundation, which envisions a world where all people have equal access to opportunity and live in balance with the environment. We believe in solar as a proven, environmentally sound solution to global energy, uh, to global energy poverty. And we award grants to community organizations whose projects are innovative, uh, equity focused, and have the potential to shift the narrative on what's possible for energy access worldwide. I'm sure you've got more that you'd like to expand on there.
0: Well, actually, in some ways that is the expanded version. And, you know, the sort of simpler version was just that I started the foundation because I wanted to do something useful in the world. And over the years, it it just turned out that all the projects that seemed the most meaningful to me all gravitated towards solar. And so then after many years of supporting solar projects, we just explicitly made it the focus of the foundation, because that's what we had a lot of experience working on and and what we thought best solved many of the, the energy problems in the world. And so, yeah, now we, now we explicitly support solar
1: fantastic mm-hmm. i I love hearing that, and i i'm I love the focus, and quite often when you look at NGOs, they do everything under the sun, but they do nothing under the sun because you can't mm-hmm. do everything well totally, and it's just really that, beautiful to see that
0: no that's exactly I mean that was that was the exact conversation that we had is like, well, we have a bunch of experience working in this one field, and this one field does solve important problems but You know, we routinely get asked, like, do you work with wind? Do you work with water projects? And, you know, I think it's important that people do those types of projects and that people work in those fields. But that's not what we do, because that's those weren't the projects that spoke to me the most. You know, they weren't the most inspiring to me. And at a certain point, you kind of got to work with what you know and do it well. Absolutely. And then on top of everything else, what
1: I'm actually most impressed by personally is your damn impressive reading list. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I, it, it's just so beautiful to see how passionate you are uh, as a reader, and I'm really excited to to discuss more of that with you. And we'll also be linking your reading list so that other folks can can check it out.
0: Cool. Thanks. Um, I mean, to be fair, the the reading list is the product of ten or twelve years of expeditions, and you know, a lot of time spent in tents, a lot of time stuck in airports. You know, I mean, I've had I've had a lot of opportunity to read. Yeah. I mean, true. To be fair, a lot of people have a lot of
1: opportunity to read and don't take it. And
0: yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah. It's funny when you're sitting on a plane and you're reading a book and then you look over and the guy next to you is like playing Candy Crush for six hours straight. You're sort of like, huh. But I try not to judge that kind of stuff too much because sometimes you do need to just decompress. And, you know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to judge, but Reading definitely can be a great way to learn about the world. Yeah, and decompress, eh? Yeah. Well, sometimes it depends because I pretty much only read nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And uh it's all pretty heavy, you know, when you're only reading climate change and environmental nonfiction stuff all the time, it's like it does wear you down a little bit. And sometimes you're just like, you just need a little candy crush or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you personally, so I'm dyslexic. Um, It took me ages to learn how to read, and I I learned later on in life by reading books and simultaneously listening to that audio, Mm. um, which actually inspired me to create Simbi, the the reading technology company that I run.
0: Um, That's interesting because I I read about the company, and I was like, oh, I don't totally get the combination of reading with audio. And then when you say dyslexia, I'm like, oh, I get that. That makes way more sense now. So.
1: The thing that's interesting about it is, if you think about the way we read, and I'm sorry to diverge on this, but I'll just I'll just share with you.
0: Yeah, the, we
1: we've been reading for 5,000 years. Our eyes are not optimized as readers. Um, we've been listening for 100,000 years. And if you if you think about that, the earliest text is only 5,000 years old. It's uh, cuneiform. And so, what, what happens quite often is that when we're just reading. That's one part of our nervous system, one part of our our lobe system that's engaged. Mm -hmm. When you listen and read simultaneously, your temporal and your occipital lobes are both engaged. So the neural pathways and connections that are strengthened and engaged are are twofold. Um, And what's really interesting about it is that then you're able to listen at significantly faster speeds where a highlighter's running along for you. And when someone right. taps on your shoulder and says, hey, Alex, what's going on? And you look at them, you still have the audio running. So when you look back, the highlighter is moving for you and you just re-engage as opposed to being like, where the hell was I? How do I get back to where I was?
0: That's interesting. But that sort of requires that platform, right? Where you have the highlighter going, you have it, basically you have to have your audio and, and visual synced well. Actually, no. So,
1: quite often, what I'll do as well is I'll take um, just a book to the park. Like I'm reading one of Aldous Huxley's books at the moment. And um, I'll I'll put in the Audible and I'll just read the book and listen to the Audible at the same time.
0: That's so, and that doesn't, and you like that. You find that better.
1: It's fully, it's a very immersive experience. And what, what I see right now is society isn't reading, and the top paid engineers at Google and Facebook are essentially paid to just keep you scrolling and searching mm-hmm. aimlessly for five more minutes. Mm-hmm. And if we can find these activities and these ways to, to, to essentially motivate people to spend more time doing core activities for society to remain a, a literate, relevant species, I think it's kind of important.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting. I, I just had that conversation with somebody. I was like, oh, all the top minds in the world right now are basically spending their energy to distract you. You know, just suck your attention away, and it's like, and it's tough because it does feel like you're fighting a war for your attention when everything around you is designed to just suck you in and just like make you feel like a zombie. And you're like, man, it does make it really hard to just focus on reading or so. You know, I don't know. I just erased uh, uh, Instagram off my phone, like basically erased the apps, and it's kind of tough because as a professional athlete, I can't really just erase all my social media because. Mm-hmm you know, I have such a platform, blah, blah, you know, I have this, and, and it is a tremendous opportunity to use my platform in, in meaningful ways. But, um, but I basically erase it all off my day to day phone. And then I just have it all on, on like a pad, basically that I just have to, that sits on a shelf that I turn on, you know, once a week to like do specific things. And I got to say, it's made my life a lot better <laughs> because that way, you know, I just, it precludes the opportunity of me just getting sucked into something by accident. But absolutely. After, do you, I was like, I don't know how serious your podcast is, but do you want the real story of what, what precipitated the change Freaking, uh, yeah. uh, do you, do you use Instagram or, you know, Instagram? It started. Um, uh, I use it a little bit, but it uh, it started a new reels feature, which was basically their attack on TikTok. you know, just mm-hmm. like an even more fast and like catchy thing. And uh, in classic style, I went to like, go to the bathroom, I'm sitting on the toilet. I'm like, what's this new thing. And then I get sucked in and like 45 minutes later, I'm like, Oh my God, my legs are numb. Where have I been? What's happened? And then I got up and was like, Oh, and then erased Instagram and was like, I'm over it. You know, it's like sometimes you just need the one really bad experience where you're like, what have I just done? You know, cause you're like, man, in that 45 minutes, there's so many things I could do that are that, are, that actually matter for my life. But instead it's like this nonstop stream of crazy videos and people dancing and like, you know, over sexualized, weird, you know, you're like, Oh, I feel bad about this. And so, that's that's what led me to be like okay this is too much like even though i'm sort of required to post to the platforms Mm -hmm. uh you know i'm just going to set it up so that i only engage with that like once a week let's say
1: we'll see that sounds like a really healthy way of doing it because obviously you've got what 2.1 or so million followers on instagram (laughs) so so you do need to maintain that audience which i understand but i love how you're how you're saying that and i actually think that's a lesson to a lot of us just like use it but if you need to use it Treat it as like your
0: work Instagram thing, which is on right. a work computer,
1: and go about
0: it that way. Yeah, it's like it's like people having a work phone, you know, where they yeah. only look at their work phone. And and I think it is good to have a little bit of separation there because it's like otherwise you do just get sucked into it and then you sort of, you know, months later you realize that you haven't done anything meaningful in your life because your day to day is just sucked into like little games and like scrolling and pictures and like crazy advertising, you know.
1: It's yeah. exactly it. I'll, I'll tell you with me as well. I um so I do have Instagram on my phone, but I really use it very infrequently. Um, and I remember realizing I, I started the the practice of gratitude journaling about five years ago. And I won't I won't look at an email. I won't check anything until I've got five to ten items on my list done. Um, that's essentially the first thing I do in the morning. And my partner at the time and I were discussing it, she she would um, sometimes spend more time like on Instagram uh, in the morning. And she also commented that not using Instagram in the morning and just going straight to some level of gratitude journaling made this profound difference um, in her day and, and it's continued to in mine. And I, I don't think there's a better service that we can do for ourselves than not going to Instagram in the morning or TikTok. And, and just recognizing that you've got two legs that work for you. You've got a back that can, you know, in your case, can climb
0: you 3,000 feet. Like, we're pretty exceptional if we appreciate it. And and if we actually use it. Yeah. Because we can't also just lay in our bed, order food delivered right to our mouth, and just scroll indefinitely. You know, it's like totally yeah. insane. Yeah. Didn't see the conversation going this way, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you just never know when you start talking about life where it's going to take you.
1: Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, where, where are we? Give me one. Give me one. <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> this <laughs> is the, the problem close. with
0: scrolling. That's the problem with scrolling. Even thinking about scrolling just makes your mind <laughs> turn to mush.
1: Yeah, there you go. While we're on it, have you read any uh, like George Orwell or Aldous Huxley?
0: You know, I had to for school, so I mean, I've read Nineteen Eighty-Four and Brave New World, and for whatever reason, my my high school was way into dystopian, sort of sci-fi-ish. Like it was all kind of dark, but um, but no, I've never really read it for pleasure.
1: Okay, the the reason I ask is because, like, just what we're talking about right now. You look at the news, you look at what presidents around the world are saying, you look at their alternative facts, and then you'll have individuals say, you know, we're living in a In an Orwellian society. Mm -hmm. And the more I think about it, the more that I think we're actually living, living in a, in a Huxleyan society. And, and and the reason I say this is because, and this is a quote from, from uh, Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death, but he says, you know, what, what Orwell feared uh, were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there'd be no reason to ban a book for there'd be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell mm-hmm. feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. And when you look right now, it's not really truth being concealed from us. It seems to be that it's literally just drowned and that we find these echo chambers and we're not even able to we don't even have the memory or the
0: the willingness to search for real truth. Totally. Like that's that's deeply depressing, but it does ring very true. Like Oh, heavy. So on that
1: note, is there, is there one, like if you had to recommend just one book from your expansive reading list that, that you think kind of provides some truth, is there any that come to mind?
0: Oh, geez. One book that provides truth, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it would need to be, uh, I would need narrower constraints you know because one one in environment uh well and also the the thing is is that they're the books that i think about the most you know and they're some of the books that i found like most personally interesting and meaningful but they aren't necessarily the most important books for somebody to read mm-hmm. uh you know like like this changes everything by Naomi klein or whatever that's mm-hmm. yeah Naomi Klein. Um, you know that's like a great climate change focused book i mean it's a great book it's very educational but the reality is it's like kind of dark. It's kind of heavy read. And, you know, I, I don't know if I remember that much from it. Um, there was this other book, uh, the world without us. Uh, I forget who wrote it, maybe Alan something. Um, we can find the author later, but, uh, the world without us, it poses a thought experiment of what happens to the world if humans just disappear. And I think about that all the time, because I just found it so interesting because it's like, he lays out what happens to cities and farms and like different, human impacted ecosystems, like how they revert back to nature. And so now as I wander through our made world, I constantly think about what it would be like as it, as it returns to nature, you know, like mm-hmm. what happens first, like which windows break. Like, I mean, he has a really interesting in New York city with all the buildings eventually falling down and the last thing standing being the Brooklyn bridge. Cause it was built pre computing, like pre engineering knowledge. Mm-hmm. So they just built it big and built it strong. And so it's just like this way overbuilt structure. And so it'd be like the last thing still standing there. It's like the pyramids or something, you know, that'll just stay forever. Um, interesting. I don't know. It's just interesting, you know. It's like one of those books where all the time you're like, "Oh, this changed my worldview." Or um, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, a People's History of the U.S. by Howard Zinn, but it's basically like a history of America um, told sort of by normal folks as opposed to sort of by the ruling class. It's kind of like a classist. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't know what the technical terms are, but it definitely changed. Fundamentally changed the way that I look at history, uh, you know. Having learned one thing in school and then reading it all flipped the other way, mm-hmm. you're like, "Whoa!" It's kind of an interesting, interesting way to relearn your history. I don't know, random, random books that off the top of my head, but those all sound fantastic. I, I've definitely
1: heard of The World Without Us and and I've read Naomi Klein's, um, but well, appreciate the recommendations. This is awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, though. Uh, if anyone's interested, they should go to, uh, what is it, honofoundation.org slash books. And it has my whole book list. And I have little comments for most of them uh, about where I read it or how I read it or, you know, wh- what I was doing at the time.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. um, a lot of them, all I remember now is is like which expedition I was on when I read it. I don't remember anything about the contents of the book. <laughs> you know, you're just like, I, I don't know. But, but I do think even even though I forget the specific contents of a book, I think the sum total of all those books does help shape your worldview and, and sort of fill out your, your knowledge in a broad way. It's like you may not remember how you know a certain fact, but, you know, it came from one of those books and, and it really does color your world.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's really well put. We, we talk about this idea in, in literacy quite often that every word you read goes into what's called your lexicon of essentially all of the words that you have just in your mind, and I think that same idea applies to what you're saying, right? You, you, you read these big ideas that, that change your mind forever in a way that your mind can never change back. You don't necessarily know where they exactly came
0: from, but it's part of that whole, it makes up uh, your thoughts. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I mean, it's interesting talking about the, the power of reading and things and changing ideas. Um, do you know uh, Ayn Rand or like Ayn Rand, whatever? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, objectivism, all that stuff. So I read all her books when I was in high school and I uh, was totally into it. And you know, in some ways, like I was pretty right wing in high school. You know, I was like really kind of hardcore and sort of every I saw everything as black and white, which I think is kind of a classic thing for a young person. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, oh, if people are poor, they should just work harder. You know, things like that, where you're like, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you're 16 or 17 mm-hmm. and you're like, I have all the answers, this is this is genius. And then over 10 years of traveling on expeditions, reading tons more books, you start to realize that that nothing is that black and white, that the issues are much more complex, that the whole world is basically, you know, inhabiting this gray area in between things. And, you know, I was like, man, it's just interesting, though, to look back and just see how wildly different my worldview is now than it was as a teenager, let's say, you're like, I mean, that kind of is the product of quite a bit of travel, but also quite a bit of reading. Right. Yeah.
1: Oh, out of curiosity, these expeditions you're talking about, are any of these Nat Geo expeditions or are these just uh, yeah. climbing trips?
0: Yeah, a, hand, a lot of them are joint National Geographic North Face expeditions. Okay. Because the North Face has a whole expedition program. Uh, the North Face is my main sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been on tons of North Face expeditions, but they're often in partnership with Nat Geo. Awesome. All right. Yeah. yeah I'm trying to think we'd like rent we to Oman. I don't yeah, I mean a handful of Nat Geo trips. but. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm actually in
1: the Nat Geo Explorer community as well. Um, and one of my supervisors is a guy named Wade Davis, who's, uh, he's like one of the explorers in, in residence. And so actually, it was interesting when I was searching through the list of the explorers, and then I, I saw you there, and I didn't realize that you had that level of Nat Geo involvement. It's quite amazing.
0: Yeah, well, and you know that Nat Geo also produced the film Free Solo. So uh, like Nat Geo TV, which is kind of a separate branch from the magazine, but it's still it's still all National Geographic. I mean, basically, I've done a, quite a bit of work with National Geographic. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So some something that I find really interesting about you
1: is when, when I think about how someone does anything, quite often, it's how they do everything. Um, and, and what I mean by that is the way that you approach anything that you do, you know, you carry the same biases with you, the same blind spots. And so quite often you really can extrapolate the, the macro from the micro. And so when you think about someone like yourself, who is so hyper-focused in, in climbing and the way that you are, and then you think about how you are also doing work in development, how you're, how you're doing work in, in, with, with Honold Foundation, you can you can assume or you can extrapolate that you're going to carry with you that same level of hyper focus that you apply to climbing, and it so and then that's just further validated by the fact that Honold Foundation have such a specific way of working, and I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about your approach, you know, to training and how it is your focus in that area. And your approach to the Honold Foundation and, and how you're focused in that area and, and what you think comes across?
0: Yes, yeah, as soon as you said that how you do one thing is how you do everything, that instantly resonated because uh, I, I am all in on, on things, you know. and I, Actually, even before I get to the work with the foundation, uh, like I recently started doing crossword puzzles. And, uh, I've done way too many crossword puzzles in the last week. And I'm sort of like, oh, like all things in my life, I just, I'm just bad at moderation. You know, it's like, if I'm into something, then I want more of it. And I mean, and honestly, that's part of the reason that I've never done drugs or alcohol or anything. Cause sort of like, I don't think I'd be very good at, at keeping it, keeping it chill, you know, because when I'm into something, I go big. And so mm-hmm. that's definitely been the case with climbing. And thankfully that's a very healthy outlet for my, for my energy. You know, it's like, I love doing it and it's good for me to do it. So, so I can just allow myself to go as, as hard as I can. Um, you know, with the foundation, I mean, to be honest, it's like, I haven't, you know, obviously I haven't gone as hard with the foundation as, as I have with climbing just because it's always sort of second to me. It's like always what I work on when I'm already pooped from climbing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, I mean, it is, it is a tremendous uh, outpouring of energy into the foundation as well. It's like, and and more and more so as I get older, I think, and that's kind of why I started it, you know, knowing that as my life went on, I would want to put more and more energy into things that actually mattered, you know, because at a certain point, like, I'm not going to be able to put as many hours into climbing just because I'm getting older, you know, things hurt more. I like, I haven't slowed down much yet, but I will, you know, I just turned 35 and, uh, by most sporting standards, I mean, that's like old for a professional athlete. Mm Um, Climbing has a much longer lifespan than, than a sport like the NFL or something like football in the U S. But, um, you know, still like, I won't be climbing at an elite level for, for more than another decade. And, and I think I'm just steadily transitioning into more work through the foundation and, and just trying to do something more useful in the world. You know, it's like, it is nice to work on projects that matter to people other than me, you know, because with climbing projects, it's strictly like for my own pleasure. But through the foundation, at least you're doing things that actually positively impact other human communities.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was watching, um, it, it must have been one of your older videos. I, you and a buddy whose name I apologize, I can't remember, but yeah, you were yes. on a backpacking trip uh, where you were cycle touring, hitting all the major peaks in the desert. Yeah.
0: And it, a, was, yes, it was. That was Sufferfest 2 with Cedar Wright. Right. 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 Yeah. What year was that? That was, I don't know, like maybe 2013 or 14.
1: Okay. And it was just so beautiful to, um, I think they were interviewing him and the, the camera pans to you like nailing in a, a small kind of photovoltaic panel on, on, a, on a little shed or a little house more accurately. But, but what he was saying about you was that he, he found it deeply inspiring that you recognized what that, that your climbing activity is selfish in the sense that it's focused on self mm. and that this added energy that you have goes to helping other people and it's just like such a beautiful way to to hear it put
0: yeah yeah no yeah totally i mean it's like one of those things you don't want to toot your own horn you don't want to overstate mm-hmm. it but you know i'm kind of like you may as, if you're going to do something it may as well be useful you know yeah yeah i'm with and, you I don't know. And and I think for me, having traveled quite a bit on climate expeditions, and then also just reading quite a bit about the world, that like you just realize that there's such tremendous need in the world. And then, and then you further realize that you can have a pretty substantial impact with a relatively small contribution, you know, like a small amount of money, a small amount of effort can go a pretty long ways in other people's lives. And I feel like when you balance those, those two things, you're kind of left with this obligation to to go out and actually do that useful thing you know, you're kind of like man if you're able to and you know that it will help quite a bit it's like you're kind of required to go do that
1: i couldn't agree with you more yeah and, i mean and I've so- also speaking
0: of books i mean i also read like the life you can save by peter singer you know books like that 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 do mm-hmm. sort of speak towards that moral obligation and you know you read enough books like that and you are sort of like oh geez you know like <laughs> like i better go do something <laughs> it's like yeah it's something
1: else that I remember in one of your. It must have been like in a 2013 conversation. But, so just to, for clarity's sake, I don't frequently just binge out on Alex Honnold YouTube <laughs> videos. Um, There's no shame in that. That's fine. But but over the last week, I definitely have, and mm-hmm. it's it, it's been wonderful. But the one thing that I really loved, apart from like just what you're able to do physically. Um, you were talking about yeah that that moral obligation, but the other thing that you were talking about is um, what what we call at Simbi Foundation return on impact, um, and so mm-hmm. how dollars can just go a longer way, for example, in a refugee settlement in Uganda, than they mm-hmm. can in some North American economies, mm-hmm. and so balancing that return on on the dollar, that return on impact, and making sure that you're creating that positive impact but recognizing just the purchasing power of parity and how you can help more people abroad. And it was beautiful to hear you talking about that.
0: No, that's, that's, yeah, I've always thought about that. And actually when I started the foundation, I was sort of splitting my money between domestic projects and, and projects abroad because I knew that the projects abroad had a bigger human impact for the money. But the projects domestically had a bigger environmental impact for the money because you're basically putting grid tied systems on a home, and they're just bigger systems. It's it's basically offsetting more carbon by doing something domestically Mm -hmm. than doing really small systems abroad. And so I felt like between by doing the two different sets of projects, uh, you know, I was kind of hitting both the environmental side and the human side in a way Mm -hmm. that felt meaningful to me.
1: Yeah, that's that's really great. So on that note, what what would you say if you think about just where the Honold foundation is today what are you most proud
0: of with it well i don't know i think what i'm most proud of um i don't know you don't I, want, yeah no, if humble, if no honest, humility think, yeah okay no when i it, it, i think what i'm most proud of is that when i started it it was just me giving 50 grand a year away two 25000 dollars grants to two different organizations and i was like oh this feels like a big contribution by my part and at the time that that was like a third of my income but you know, I lived in a car, and it didn't matter. And I was like, "Yeah, it seems like an appropriate level of giving." Um, you know, this year we're giving away a million dollars in grants, so we're having twenty times the impact that when I then when I started. And now we have a full team. You know, I have an executive director with a staff. I mean, it's a team of three and a half, kind of four people. But uh, but still, it's basically four people working full time to find the best ideas, the best projects, implement those projects in a in a in a way that works, you know, basically like make sure that the projects do run the way they're supposed to. Um, I don't know. I'm just like, man, we're having 20 times the impact with a better team. And it's been, I don't know, seven, eight years. It just like, it's, it's cool to see an organization uh, sort of learn and grow like that.
1: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure you're growing as well as you're challenged on like, what are my, you know, mission, vision, values, setting those up objectives and key results, the key performance indicators that you work on with the team?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've read books about each of those. OKRs, KPIs. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's all about your little business acronyms. Actually, I don't know if we really said any of those because I think each time I read a business book that teaches about, you know, objectives and key results, I'm like, that sounds so interesting. I should apply that to my life. And then I try to and I'm just like, uh, you know, at a certain point, especially with climbing and with with like athletic achievement, mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense to just like train in the way that I always have and, and not quantify it too much with the, with the objectives and key results and things, you know, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Well, well. on that note, so, you know, you bring up like, okay, it's a business acumen or it's business lingo, but quite often we, we do talk in business about like, okay, well, how are we going to get this team to climb that mountain? Right. And like, if that mountain is our objective, what are the key results along the way that we need to accomplish yeah. to get the team safely and securely up? And so, so you I naturally do. climb the mountains, right? Yeah. So do you do you think of like, like when do you, from your perspective, are they are they comparable? Like building an organization and and scaling a mountain and the training that takes place and
0: the clarity? yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's slightly cliché to talk about it in that way, but yeah, they are sort of comparable in that. You know, building a team, uh, establish good milestones along the way, working your way to the summit, you know, basically taking a really big challenge and breaking into smaller pieces and then working on those pieces systematically and sequentially. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that definitely applies to business the same as it applies to climbing. But, uh, you know, I've actually read quite a few business books and, uh, you know, actually, do you know Jim Collins? He's like the best business author of all time. You know, so you know, actually books yeah, so he's like an elite rock climber. Like he was actually a cutting edge rock climber when he was in his twenties and he still climbs at a very high level. Um, like he's climbed with a lot of my friends anyway. So I've like read all his books because you know, you're like, Oh, that guy's badass and he's a rock climber, but you know, you read the books and you're like, Oh, it's all, it's like, you know, a little bit hokey. Like, I don't know. It's like, but no, but I guess the lessons are true. You know, it just feels like a little cliche to, to compare things to climbing. You know, it's like everyone who's ever climbed Everest then goes on the corporate speaking tour comparing, you know, getting to Camp 3 as, like, hitting their quarterly sales goals. <laughs> it's kind of like, come on, you know? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's like, you haven't climbed Everest, have you? No, I'm not making fun, but...
1: <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know,
0: just... I haven't know. hit haven't hit our core
1: three sales milestones. something. <laughs> <out there. laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it's COVID. It's COVID. Those numbers are all at the window. <laughs> um, but so on that note,
1: so do you have, from from a personal climbing perspective, do you have another El Cap in mind? Like, do you have the next? What's the next El Cap?
0: No, there's nothing. There's nothing quite at that scale. Just because there doesn't really exist anything else at that mm-hmm. scale. Uh, I mean, LCAP Cap is a, a unique. Like because it's not just the rock face, which is amazing, it's also the history and the and the climbing history you know mm-hmm. it's like there's just so much drama written on that wall, you know there's so many classic climbing stories uh, I don't know, so there's nothing quite like that uh nothing else quite like that in the world um you know, but I have a bunch of big climbing goals you know things that I want to do um I don't know. I Actually, I was planning on doing another supper fest with Cedar, like you just talked about with the bike tour. Mm-hmm. We were going to do, do another thing like that this spring, but obviously because of COVID, uh, you know, we canceled any travel plans. But so th- there are a bunch of like fun climbing projects like that that are that are in the future. And then you never really know how those come together to to inspire you for bigger challenges. You know, what I mean, I just haven't really gotten to that point yet, I guess.
1: Totally just get it. it. So my follow-up to that is when you think about, you know, the years of training that took place for LCAP, uh, you know, you looked at it, you trained for it for years. What, what is Alex Honnold's, what is the Honnold
0: Foundation's LCAP? What, what is that mountain? It's funny. I don't know if the Honnold Foundation, I mean, (laughs) I guess if you were really looking, you know, at the far, far like fantasy future, I mean, the Cap would be humanity transitioning to 100% renewable energy and fossil fuels being a thing of the past and, and humanity avoiding the worst of catastrophic climate change. You know, obviously, those are all things that the Han Foundation will have a tiny, tiny piece in contributing mm-hmm. to, hopefully. Um, but they are problems that are so big and so global in scale that no one organization is going to really, you know, push the needle on, on those issues. But... You know, I hope that we can at least contribute in some small way.
1: Absolutely, I feel like we need to get you and Elon Musk hanging out, and then you're working on green and solar together, and then you could possibly the first guy to be the first guy to climb a mountain on Mars. Be pretty sweet.
0: But I'm pretty sure it's a really low gravity, so it wouldn't be that challenging. We'd weigh you down. Oh uh, yeah, okay. Then it would be challenging. Yes. You have to take a lot of oxygen. <laughs> I I would, I would love to go to space in my lifetime if it's possible, but um, you know, but there are so many problems to focus on at home on earth that you're sort of like, uh, you know, might, might be worth focusing on things here. It's really funny you bring that
1: up. Um, So I I couldn't agree with you more. I I think it's really, I think we need people like Musk doing exactly (laughs) what he's doing. He's good at it. He loves it. It And that's what he wants to be doing. And we need people who are focused on the problems on on planet Earth. But the reason that i it's funny that, that you just said that is that when I was doing this like week long binge of, of research on you, one of the things that just started kind of like just fizzling around my mind was you and Musk actually both did a similar feat in, in the last five years. And, and what that is, and and look, they're they are different feats and they have different impact. But Elon Musk made people look up. He made them look at the sky and have dreams and hopes and aspirations of getting to Mars. And he really reignited us this love mm-hmm. and passion of us being in this spacefaring civilization. Mm-hmm. Um and to be honest, I think that you have forever changed the way that people perceive big slabs of rock. And, and I and I honestly mean it.
0: <laughs> yeah maybe not quite as meaningful as sending humans to mars but you know it's something it's something i appreciate that no but but it, it's it, it shows like
1: regardless of who you are you, you it shows just what passion what what being someone who's on a mission with a with a dose of passion can actually accomplish
0: totally it get, yeah and like a glimpse of human potential you know yeah. like nobody else is going to replicate that nobody else is interested nobody even cares about climbing but it's nice to see that if somebody applies themselves 100% to something, they can do it at a very high level. Absolutely. Yeah, Actually, have you seen the film, um, what is it, Hero Dreams of Sushi? I think it's, I think that's how you say his name. It's a Japanese guy. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I moved past it on Netflix once. Oh, you should, you should watch it. it someday if you can. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's truly a film about human mastery. It's like an old sushi chef. And mm-hmm. it's exactly that where you're like, what an interesting, in some ways, a very small life because all he does is wrap sushi perfectly, but he does it perfectly. And it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, this is what human mastery looks like. It's not, you know, like, I don't want to roll sushi. Like, I don't even want to eat sushi that much. You know, like, I I don't eat fish that often. But knowing that there's somebody out there that can take his task and execute it at such a high level is inspiring to me. I saw the film and I was like, that is awesome.
1: That is cool. Yeah. The, the, the reason that I often think about about that exact intersection and example is because when I think about, like, I've spent a lot of time in the refugee settlements in, in mm-hmm. Uganda and we spend so much time in North America trying to figure out what kids are passionate about because w- once you find your passion, you find your purpose, you have direction and, and really mm-hmm. that's when you learn. That's when you grow. Um, and, and so we, we spend a lot of time, like we've got these solar power classrooms in the refugee settlements and, and we spend time figuring out what the learners are passionate about learning with the goal of, you know, creating that purpose and, and actually that movement so that if you do want to go climb a, a rock or if you want to, sorry, a, a mountain um, or if you want to build rocket ships or if you want to be a nurse, you, mm-hmm. you're exposed to that, to, to have that passion and purpose. And we call it as a team, we call it activating human potential. Um, and so I, I just think you're such a beautiful example of someone who is so activated.
0: It's funny know? It's funny you mentioned activating human potential because that was a big part of why I started the HanNA Foundation was on a couple of different expeditions in Africa, driving through really, really rural villages and in, in far Northern Chad, uh, just basically the middle of nowhere and seeing little kids basically just playing in the dirt and like herding goats and things. And when we drove through these villages, I was just like, oh, it's just such human, like, you know, it felt like squandered human potential, because I was like, any one of these kids could be an astronaut if they got the right education. And yet they're going to spend their entire existence herding goats in this little sandy corner, which, you know, if that's their choice, power to them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that some of them, you know, might potentially dream about leading us to Mars. And I'm like, and if they do, I would love for them to have that opportunity. Because the thing is, is like, you know, when you're driving around some of the remote corners of Earth, It's like, you know, that some of those kids are probably geniuses, you know, and it's like, and you hate to see that genius wasted, like herding goats, you know? Yeah. I mean, unless they want to, in which case they'll herd their goats really, really well. And I'm like, I respect that. But I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, there's so many big problems facing humanity. It's like, you may as well have as many smart minds as possible working on them. And it's like, you just want to get more people in the race, you know, like Mm -hmm. get more human brains tapped into helping to, to move us forward.
1: That's exactly it, and and human brains that have that very diverse upbringing and experience, right? Who bring that to the table?
0: <laughs> totally. I, if you were a goat herder in northern Chad and you wound up going <laughs> to Mars, I think your world would be blown. You know, <laughs> like that's that's, yeah.
1: It's conversations like this that really make me love, like just getting a, being able to speak to someone like you and just to have meaningful, engaging conversation is so
0: lovely. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. No. Yeah. Honestly, me too. I mean, it's kind of like chats like that, that they keep you inspired for the work that you're doing you're kind of like, Oh, well at least, you know, there are other people trying in the world. And, and to some extent you're like, Oh, all the, all the stuff that I read and work on, like it all matters. You know, you're like, yay. You're like, somebody cares. I don't know. And so the other thing
1: that I want to mention, you're in a house now. There was mm-hmm. definitely a period of time that you were
0: living in a car. Uh, yeah, like 11, 12 years or something like that. So wh- when did you upgrade? <laughs> um, or or so downgrade? <laughs> yeah, it depends how you look at it. Uh, in the film Free Solo, I bought a house in uh, Las Vegas, which uh, most people don't know is some of the best climbing in the U.S. Actually, some of the best outdoor access all the way around in the U.S. And uh, so we, I mostly live in Vegas. And then uh, my family has had a place in Tahoe that I've spent summers in for my entire life. And so that's where I am right now but um yeah now i technically live in a house i have to say that having uh, a girlfriend soon to be wife actually and uh and congrats you know working a little bit more yeah thanks uh it makes having a home like having a home makes sense mm-hmm. i mean and some of that actually is just like natural arc of life stuff as well because you know i spent maybe 12 years traveling and climbing nonstop with like a hunger to just try every route in the western u.s and at a certain point you're like okay, you know, I've basically traveled around the Western us for 12 years straight, you know, I'm pretty happy to just train in my garage and then be a little more strategic about which areas I go to what I try to climb. You know, I'm just like, I just don't quite have the same, like I need to climb nonstop in new places all the time, probably because there are fewer new places for me now, you know?
1: <laughs> Makes sense.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and so what's your, what was your camper van or
0: your, your car of choice? Uh, I lived in a Ford Econoline, like an E-150 for uh, nine or 10 years. And then now I still have my uh, Dodge Ram, uh, like a ProMaster. It's like a big full-size van. Um, I've lived out of that for the last, I don't know, th- four years or something. But now technically I have the house. So the I only use the van for, for trips now.
1: And w- what are your favorite, what would it be a highlight of living in a in a van? And then give me a low light, for example, not being able to shower as frequently. or
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, the highlight is definitely the location. I mean, the beauty of living in a van is that you're always parked in the most beautiful place on earth, or you're always parked exactly where you want to be. And so anytime you open the door, you're just like, oh, this is where I wanted to be. Like, this is perfect. Um, I mean, the the downside of van life is, yeah, I mean, not having showers Little annoying, but it doesn't really matter that much because typically wherever you camp for long periods in a van, you have some kind of situation sorted out where you like use the the city rec center or you have a friend that lives nearby or something. You know, there's always some solution for for hygiene and all that. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's not a huge downside to van life. <laughs> it's like I kind of love van life. It's just that I think that particularly when you have a partner and it's like a couple and you both kind of have jobs as well, van life gets a little bit more complicated because you just need better cell service. Like right now I have really good Wi-Fi, you know, but this is the type of thing that's really hard to do from a van because you just couldn't guarantee that you could get quiet Wi-Fi.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But yeah, like classic thing with van life is somebody sends me an email that's like, go ahead and print this and sign it and send it back to me. And I'm like, how, you know, that's like an insurmountable challenge. <laughs> like I you know I like I don't know how you do that it's like oh no and so very simple things like that where someone's like just go ahead and send me this thing I'm like that is impossible it cannot be done you know it makes a lot of like real life things very challenging.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you think when you moved into a house do you find that your priorities change at all or that just the way you kind of view the world changes?
0: Uh, so far, I don't think my worldview has changed that much by being in a house. Um, maybe the biggest difference with living in a house is that kind of like I was saying, I've lost like the urgency a little bit, you know, you're just so comfortable in a house that you're kind of like, oh, you know, another day goes by like, nope, you know, like that's great. I'm happy. Uh, whereas I think when you're living in the van in the, in an area, you're there for a reason. And so you're kind of constantly working towards that reason, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're kind of pursuing climbing goals nonstop. With a house, it's easier for time just to kind of go by because you're just enjoying living in a house.
1: Yeah. I guess I guess one of the things that it makes me think about, I remember in, in my first year of uni, we read this book called uh, Stone Age Economics by Marshall Salins. And he had gone to the Kalahari Desert in 1930 and had spent time um, with with, tri- with people, uh, tribesfolk, who live in the Kalahari. And essentially, as a... Um, as a sociologist, he ends up concluding these populations have lower heart disease, more sex, and work fewer hours than the average British doctor, just based on their way of life. And so mm. he he was one of the early people in development to really change our perceptions and to say, you know, just because that's what you know doesn't mean it's the right way of doing things.
0: Totally. So it makes me think that... Uh, like, so like sometimes that sometimes that semi-romanticized version of indigenous life like sort of annoys me as well though because most folks living off the land or like living as hunter-gatherers and things nowadays they still like want a cell phone they still would like to have refrigeration they still would like to have access to medicine you know that they, they like having power it's like in general humans all kind of enjoy the same comforts and so i kind of hate the like oh well basically I hate over glamorizing sort of stone age living because like nobody really wants to live in the dirt and be dirty all the time you know or I mean you know some people might and some people might choose that but most communities living that lifestyle didn't necessarily choose to live that lifestyle Mm -hmm. it's just kind of what they were born into so I don't know
1: I I guess the first of all I'm I'm fully with you but the the reason I bring it up is because I do wonder it's like do you think that if more people had the opportunity to actually live in a van, would they say, hey, you know what, this this has actually been a fantastic experience? Or would the overwhelming majority say, no, no,
0: I'm ready to go back to a house? Well, they might might say they're ready for a house. Because, I mean, for sure, at a certain point, you're like, you know, it's just nice to be comfortable in a house. Mm -hmm. But I think if you live in a van for a while, when you do go back to living in a house, you sort of realize how few things you really need. Uh, You know, it's like your house doesn't have to be full of stuff. I mean, you may notice that this whole loft that I'm sitting in has actually nothing in it I can pan this it's a completely empty loft it's just (laughs) you know all there is is a desk that I'm sitting at and otherwise there's a rug and actually the rug is only here because uh when my girlfriend ordered a rug for another part of the house they actually sent two it was just like a total shipping error and then she refused to send it back because it was so heavy so now we have two rugs and you know it's just one of those things you're like you just don't need a bunch of stuff in your house to like make it make it useful you know
1: Absolutely, <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, so you know you're a fan of you well know Harari's books. Yeah, from, from from your book list, I gather that there's this concept that he talks about in, I'm um, in Sapiens, which Daniel Kahneman also talks about in Thinking Fast and Slow, which I also saw on your book list. Mm. And essentially, I think you well know Harari just describes it so beautifully, the the cost-benefit analysis, the decision-making, and the complexity of it that goes into it and how quickly it's calculated. And he gives the example of a baboon sitting in a tree looking at some fruit that he could possibly eat. Uh, And he is looking at that and he's looking at a pride of lions and he's looking at the distance from the tree to the floor. And essentially he is doing rapid you know, multiple regression analysis to figure out if it's actually worth his while to to go down and get this fruit. And I'm wondering when when you are climbing, when when you're just like I understand you do a lot of rehearsing ahead of time and it's very well choreographed. At least that's how you put it. But how much of how much of that uh, of that cost benefit analysis is is actually going into your decision making when you're figuring
0: this out? In, in theory, all of the cost-benefit analysis, all that decision-making is occurring beforehand. And that's part of the practice. That's part of the choreography. That you know, That's part of the, the preparation that goes into a big free solo. I mean, and we're talking specifically about something cutting-edge for me, like, like free soloing El no Cap, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the subject of, of free solo, the documentary. Um, I mean, there are plenty of other climbs that I've done where there's no preparation, but it's also much closer to, uh, much more within my physical limits, like much easier for me and I'm just going out for a casual day of climbing. And so when I do that kind of thing, yeah, I am kind of constantly evaluating in that way. And and probably in a way that's not dissimilar from the baboon and the the pride of lions, because, you know, he's not actually running numbers. The baboon just kind of has a feeling like I can make it, I should do this. Or he's like, that seems terrifying. I'm not going to do it unless he's really, really hungry. And then he's like, well, maybe it is worth it. You know, I think I'll make it. And so you know, I think that in general, my, my cost-benefit analysis is more on that level. You know, it's more sort of a gut feeling like this is not worth it or like, oh, that seems really scary. I mean, in a lot of ways, the feeling of fear helps inform you with that cost-benefit kind of thing, because if something seems terrifying, you know, there's a pretty good chance that that's your body sending you a signal that that you are in danger by doing that thing. You know, sometimes fear is totally unfounded, but, but oftentimes, you know, it is giving you a valid warning. Right. you should eat that, or at least take it into consideration.
1: Absolutely. So so then, so with you in particular, I guess there are a few different levels of fear. So I, I wanna talk about the boulder problem for a moment. And before I do, can you just provide some context, location, elevation, rock type, like just, just tell us sure. a bit
0: about it. So the boulder problem is the most difficult part of Free free Rider, which is the root of El Capitan, which is a solo uh, in the film, Free Solo. And it's kind of, in some ways, the climax of the film, because it really builds up to this very difficult maneuver to, you know, which really, I mean, it culminates in this karate kick, which is like this specific move to to bridge between, to bridge over this other crack. I don't know. I mean, basically you're 2,300 feet up, um, you know, or maybe, um, maybe 700 meters up uh, this granite wall. And it's the smoothest, most difficult part of the whole face. And it's, it's pretty freaking hard, you know. And, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. and, and so w- what I'm wondering about,
1: we're, we're talking about fear. And, you know, there's, there's fear that is founded and there's fear that's unfounded. So w- when you're in that position, I mean, like, w- what is actually, what is your stomach doing? What is your mind doing? What is, this, what is your psyche telling you? What are you thinking about when when you're in that space?
0: Uh, Yeah. So, so the Boulder problem had been, you know, was the biggest hurdle, the biggest question mark in all of my preparation for free rider. It always kind of stemmed around, can I do the Boulder problem? Will I feel comfortable doing the Boulder problem? Mm -hmm. And so I I didn't go up there for the actual climb until I felt comfortable that I could execute it well and that I would be able to execute it under pressure. Um, So on the day that I did it, there wasn't much going through my mind. You know, the whole point was that I'd already sort of settled those questions. And I just went up there and just did what I was supposed to do. Um, you know, and I, and I suppose that's probably somewhat similar to the training that the like military goes through, or like law enforcement goes through where, you know, the whole point is to train you to act ref- reflexively in certain situations, uh, and not think about it. Because the reality is, if I climbed half of the boulder problem and then just paused on one of the holds and started to really reflect on where I was and what I was doing, like, you know, I'm just holding onto a little hold. And then I just started looking around thinking I'm in the middle of the hardest part on all of L Cap. It's like, yeah, after a few moments, I'm sure I would crumble and be like, Oh my God, get me out of here. You know, it would all fall apart for sure. Uh, but the point is that because I had prepared mentally ahead of time, you know, I didn't stall out in a situation like that. You know, I knew that I could just climb right through it and, and do the climb.
1: And so what are you actually thinking about when you're, when you're climbing or, or specifically on, on the, on that section? Do you remember like, what is what you're thinking?
0: No, about? So, so on something like the boulder problem, I mean, I'm not really thinking about anything and that's kind of the whole point is just that blank execution. And you know, there's no not- music playing. There's no nothing. It's just your no. blank, ex- blank execution. Yeah, though, oftentimes on easier terrain, I do play music just because it's a nice way to, you know, it's, it's nice to listen to. And uh, it's also a good way for me to keep track of time, because mm-hmm. I know how long tracks are normally. So it right. gives me a sense of the pace that I'm climbing at. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, so a, a face like El Cap, or the root free rider can kind of be broken into to maybe thirds, it's just the way the root breaks down. Mm-hmm. But so probably a third of it it's sort of cutting edge climbing that I had to be 100% focused on. And, and basically, my mind was blank, I was just executing, you know, it was, it's all pretty intense. And then a third of it's kind of more moderate. And then a third of it's like pretty easy, actually. Uh, and so on that easy terrain, that's where I can be listening to music, that's where I can be enjoying the view, I can look at the birds, I can like, yell at other climbers or whatever, you know, it's all like pretty chill. Um, but so for a third of it, I'm just enjoying the experience. And then a third of it, I'm paying attention, but it's still enjoyable. And then for a third, it's like intense and I'm just doing it. Right. What was, uh, what was your first meal that you ate when you finished El Cap? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I know that the next day happened to be, I guess I must have done it on a Saturday because the next day was Sunday brunch at the Iwani Hotel, which is the really classy hotel in Yosemite Valley. And so the whole film crew went for this really fancy Sunday brunch, and I remember because I hadn't eaten dessert in in months. I was on this no sugar kick because I was trying to stay super fit for, for extreme climbing, you know. And uh, and so then we went to Sunday brunch, and I had all this like Nutella filled French toast and stuff like that. You know, it's totally it's totally. I was like, oh, it's so good. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, do you have time for like two more questions? Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel bad that it got, like got dark, but you know. No, no worries. This is yeah, fantastic. Cool. Um. So w-
1: one of the things that that I often think about, and that that I'm always interested in finding out from others, is these days. You and I chatted about this earlier. People have a focus problem. It's it's very in the 21st century. You know, we we are distracted and bombarded left, right, and center, and What, what do you do? Like, what, what advice would you give to someone to, you know, a younger entrepreneur or someone starting university or someone who's about to enter the next phase or the next chapter? And what what advice would you give to them about how to find passion or how to get focus?
0: Honestly, I'm not totally sure. And I I don't even know if I'm the best person to answer that because I think I struggle with it as much as anybody else to some extent, or at least I would say that I struggle with it as well. And, you know, I don't know how much other people struggle with it, but I'm sort of like, man, I mean, I feel like my attention is constantly being sucked into various things. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I just got into crosswording, And so I have the New York times crossword app, but now I'm like, Oh, now that's become a new time suck. And I'm sort of like, well, at least it's helping my, my vocabulary. But at the same time, it's basically just another way of sucking my attention into a small device. You know, it's um, I don't know. I mean, I think that I happened to be quite lucky to have found something that I really love, like climbing, at a young age, and have been able to pour tons of time and focus and attention into that one thing. I think that if someone doesn't have something that's you know equally meaningful to them in their life, like I don't really know how you go about finding it. I mean, I guess you try new experiences. You, I, I I often say follow your heart, kind of half a joke, but. But I mean, to some extent, if you enjoy doing something, then do it. You know, it's like there's no there's no harm in following that passion as, as far as you can. Uh, you know, even if it's not going to support you necessarily, you're not going to make a living doing that thing. It's like if you love music, then play music. You know, I mean, there's no no reason not to. It's like life is short. Like, you know, enjoy what you spend your time doing. Yeah. I, I think Could the thing that drives me crazy is is people that just get sucked into – you know, what's considered normal, like, Oh, I go to the bar on Friday and Saturday, because all my friends do and you're kind of like, but do you, you know, because if you like going and getting wasted twice a week, you're like, cool, if that's your passion, go for it. But I would wager that most people engaging in that kind of activity aren't doing it because they love the activity they're just doing because everybody else is. you know, you're kind of like, come on, like be, you know, you're only going to live a finite amount of time, be intentional about how you use that time, you know, like, spend it on the stuff that you care about. Absolutely. Actually, speaking of intentionality turned another way, we were just talking about desserts, but like I freaking have a major sweet tooth and I love some desserts, but I never eat certain types of candy like Skittles. I'm like, oh, I hate Skittles, but I eat M&Ms. You know, and it's, and it's totally arbitrary because I know they're both made of high fructose corn syrup. They're like exactly the same product. They're made by the same manufacturer. You know, it's all the same. And yet one of them doesn't give me the same pleasure as the other. And so I'm like, that one I refuse. Like basically, if I'm going to waste a ton of calories and a ton of like negative health outcomes on a dessert, I better make sure it's the one that gives me the most pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I just think you may as well be intentional about things like that in your life.
1: But yeah. I mean, they say homo economicus, right? Uh,
0: <laughs> homo sapiens are utility maximizers. So that, well, that's I'm exactly- arguing that that people maybe should maximize even slightly more, you know, because I think it's really easy to not maximize your life quite enough and to get sucked into things that you don't really care about.
1: Uh, Yeah. I could not agree with you more. And, and actually on that note as well, the one, one of the bits of advice that you shared now, you know, follow your heart. And even if you have to have another job do it, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And then one of the things that I find that I'm making an, an effort to do more of is, you know, I used to ask people, like you know the standard. You meet someone new, and it's like, "Hey, what do you do?" And I start to realize it's like, "What are you passionate about?" Is just a better totally. question because it actually totally elevates totally them. Even... Yeah. Or what do you like to do? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And then I, I find just having just more having that conversation um, and opening up more people to asking that question. Just it's amazing what happens around the room. Just conversationally.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's. I totally agree. It's like i forget there's some quote uh about you know there's no such thing as a boring person because you can always find the one thing that someone's interested in it's like and i think about that all the time when i'm at events and i'm schmoozing you know you're just like chatting with people in a crowd and for me like i'm i'm naturally sort of introverted i can find that kind of soul-sucking in a way <laughs> but if you instead flip it around and you flip it to an opportunity to like find the interesting thing about the people around you then it actually can be quite inspiring you're sort of like oh wow that guy does this crazy thing and this guy has this crazy hobby and who would have thought that that other guy you know it's like when you draw out the thing that someone's most interested in it it really does add a lot of energy
1: yeah yeah that's a great tip I like that I've I've actually never heard that before
0: oh it's a I think it's a quote from like a first lady or something Hmm. Um, it was it has something to do with like sitting at dinner parties it's like you should always be able to draw the most interesting thing out of the person next to you Fascinating. Um,
1: yeah. One last question for you, and that is, in, in terms of just how the, how the Honnold Foundation operates um, and the way that you work with partner communities and, and work with other implementing partners to provide in, uh, interventions in these partner communities, what, what is your personal vision for how partner communities and um, companies or nonprofits that are providing the interventions how they how they operate or interact uh, with one another.
0: That's that's interesting. I mean, that's kind of a complex question in a way. But I think in the simplest way, the Hana Foundation has always worked with our partners in in sort of the same way that I work with my climbing partners. Is basically that I we only support people that we trust, and then we trust them all the way. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, we give unrestricted grants. We we don't like oversee the funding in any way. It's like basically if we're going to work with somebody, then we trust them to do what they think is best to implement the project. Um, you know, and if we don't trust somebody, then we don't work with them, you know, or if they lose that trust, then we don't work with them further. But, and, and that's kind of the way I run my life. And the, and certainly with climbing, it's like you surround yourself with people that you trust. You you surround yourself with a good team and then you trust them with your life. You know I mean? And that is the essence of climbing. It's like, you know, the people that you climb with are literally holding your life in their hands. And so, you know, if you're going to go climbing with them, it's kind of a big deal. And then you trust them a hundred percent. And so, I mean, I guess that's basically how we see our partners with the Hanna foundation as well. I mean, it was never explicitly like tied to climbing, but over the years I've sort of realized that it is exactly the same mindset.
1: That's one of the most beautiful analogies I've heard in terms of just that partnership. I, I really love that.
0: Yeah. It's like, I think it's easy to, to cloak that kind of thing in language about, you know, enabling your grantees and, and, uh, you know, no restriction grant funding and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, really, I think it's better to just phrase it as work with people you trust and then trust them a hundred percent, you
1: know, something that's uh, that I find quite unique to you and, uh, I mean, at the at the ripe old age of thirty-five, it, it seems to have carried you this far. So I don't see it changing, and I, I hope it doesn't. But you've got this really beautiful nonchalance about the the work that you do and this approach that you do. And and I don't mean it in in like a nonchalant negative negatively at all. I mean it in a very, like humble. You're just happy to do it, and it, it's it's really nice to hear. Thank you for for sharing it in in that
0: accessible way. No, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's always been easy to keep it accessible like that because you know i dropped out of university i'm just like a normal dude from the suburbs you know what i mean like it's easy for me to visualize my whole path having gone a completely different direction you know like i could have been one of many different people and like i wound up on this random path where you know i get to climb the most beautiful walls in the world for a living and i'm like that's pretty incredible you know i'm like who ever would have thought that that it would all work out this way and i'm like sweet you know, but I think it's easy for me to sort of imagine how life would have been in other scenarios. And and I think that keeps it all in perspective where you're like, well, you know, my life went one way, but that doesn't make it any better or worse than any other ways that it could have gone. You
1: know? Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, if if there are nonprofits that are actually tuning in and listening, um, is there a place that we can direct them to, to apply for, for grant funding with you?
0: Yeah, the easiest thing would just be go to HanoFoundation.org. Our website has a really good section on grantees. I don't think that we're doing an open call for grant applications right now. Um, but in general, I mean, they can reach out to just send an email to the foundation. It's a pretty small team. So, I mean, it's all going to get read, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, hanalfoundation.org, you can see the types of projects that, that we have supported uh, and then see if your type of project fits. And then if so, reach out to the foundation.
1: All right. Well, Alex, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: No, thank you. I, uh, I, I think I find it just as energizing to have a good conversation like that and be like, oh, I want to go out and do something useful in the world. You know, I'm all psyched.
1: Thank you for listening to Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation this episode was sponsored by RBC. And if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to our channel so you don't miss new episodes. Stay tuned for the next episode in which I'll be speaking with geneticist, professor, and climate change activist David Suzuki about impactful actions that we can all take to combat climate change.